Welcome to another episode of Spooning with Spoonies. I'm your host and fellow Spoonie, Noah Porton, and I'm just a girl trying to figure out how to date with chronic illness. I started this podcast to ask other single and coupled up Spoonies, as well as relationship experts, about their journeys and feelings navigating dating and relationships with chronic illness and disability. So come on this journey with me as we explore the essence of life. Relationships. Seeking connection is as human as it gets, and we all deserve to feel human. Today, I chat with my amazing friend, Tina Aswani Omprakash, a Crohn's patient and award-winning patient expert and health advocate who shares her insights and advocacy efforts through her blog, Own Your Crohn's, which you can find at ownyourcrohn's.com. As a fierce patient advocate for women of color, especially women in the South Asian culture, Tina passionately shares her experiences facing stigma surrounding IBD in the South Asian culture and how that affected her marriage. We talk about navigating weddings, caregiving, intimacy, and more. So get comfy and let's get spooning. Thank you so much for coming on Spooning with Spoonies. Of course. Thank you so much for having me today. So tell me a little bit about your chronic illnesses and kind of how they manifest for you currently right now on the day-to-day. You know, I I go by Own Your Crohn's for several reasons, but Crohn's happens to be primary disease that I have. I was uh, diagnosed at the age of 22. And back in 2006, and I've probably had symptoms and signs of it for since childhood, um, with extra intestinal skin issues and eye issues and joint issues. So I really think this was more of a long-standing diagnosis. But with that, I had irritable bowel syndrome. I've had GERD. I now live with gastroparesis, which is a paralysis of the stomach that we think might have come about from all the surgeries that I've had. And just to sort of backtrack, I've had about 20 surgeries over a seven-year period of time living with Crohn's disease. I also have a permanent ileostomy, which uh, so I have this external ostomy appliance that's attached to my abdomen through which I defecate. So that's how I use the bathroom. That's how I go number two. So it's a different way to go to the bathroom, primarily because um, I've had so much inflammation uh, that I couldn't hold stool. I I don't have a colon. Um, I don't have a rectum, so I don't go through my bottom. Uh, This is just something that goes on its own. I have a small intestine that's been brought out. I have a small stoma. And through it, I go to the bathroom um, like anybody else might. I love the way you describe just going to the bathroom differently because that's something that I'm really trying to promote on here that chronic illness and disability makes things different and different is not lesser than, it's literally just different. For, for me, having an ostomy has given me my life back in so many ways. Now, the, the, the thing is having an ostomy is also deeply, deeply stigmatized because it's like, oh my God, you have a bag attached to you that you're going to the bathroom in. But I'm just like, who cares? Everybody goes to the bathroom one way or another. So what difference does it make? And that stigma is definitely something I want to get into um, in a little bit. So I know you kind of had some health stuff looking back that you can recognize early signs as you were younger, but you didn't get really sick until you were like 21, 22. So when you first got sick at that point, were you dating at all during those years before you met your husband? Oh, yeah. I, I definitely was dating quite a bit during that time. I mean, it was college years and high school and stuff. So I was dating. I think I just dealt with those issues in college because it wasn't like anything super major at that point. I think it started to become major when I started to work and I was dating through this time. It was nothing super serious. So in January 2006, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and I was dating people here and there, but it wasn't like anyone who I would, you know, want to get serious with. So I never shared um, my diagnosis at that point. But come May 2006 is when I met my now husband, uh, his name's Anand. And at that point I was like, okay, I really like this guy. We actually met in April and I think we started dating in May, but I didn't tell him until probably June end. And at that point I, I was getting sick and I was in and out of the hospital at times and it was affecting my life a lot more greatly 
that it wasn't something that I could just be like, you know, it's no big deal. I So I ended up telling him that I have this condition and I encouraged him to research it. And at that point I said, look, this runs in my family and inflammatory bowel disease, it's actually Crohn's that runs in my family. Um, and I'm not sure it's taking the lives of people in my family and I don't want you to get into a relationship with me without you knowing that. Um, and I don't want us getting super serious without you knowing that. And, um, you know, if this is, if this is something you can't handle, I'd rather you leave now than when we're in the thick of things and I might not be so well. It was just a matter of, I don't want to keep this from somebody that I really like. I want to base my relationship on a foundation of truth. I don't want there to be lies from the beginning because that's not fair to him or to me, right? It's hard to find somebody that you actually truly like or love. So they have a chronic illness. It's something that you're going to have to deal with. Every couple, every everybody has something they have to deal with, some cross they have to bear. And so his thinking was like, if I really like you, why would a chronic illness get in the middle of that? Were there any like fears when you kind of told him about your illness? Because I know, um, I don't know if you had any, you know, you said you dated a fair amount before that, if you had any um, bad experiences or anything like that. I know for me, I didn't even realize that for a long time, I kind of hid things because I had like a fear of almost like a fear of abandonment and just not just in dating situations, but, you know, because I think with chronic illness, we're so often not believed and, you know, we feel like such a burden. So were there like fears um, when telling him, when telling his family? I mean, I, I got a sense that people would have trouble digesting that somebody has a chronic illness and that, you know, we're getting serious and we're young and this and that. I had a sense of it, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't, very, uh, you know, like I wasn't well aware of how much of a difference it could make. I think I was more concerned about the stigma in my culture. Um, and that was sort of what was driving me telling him. So for me, um, just to be very honest with you, um, in, in my culture, a lot of people get married and they have arranged marriages and they don't disclose a single flaw. And having a disease is considered a quote unquote flaw. And so uh, a lot of times people will get married and they won't know that the other person has a chronic illness or that they've been divorced or that this or that. And these are discussions and conversations you should be having prior to marriage. So I was thinking more along the lines of my culture. I would not want anybody to do this to me. I would never do it to someone else. And that's what I was sort of thinking. You know, when you think of arranged marriage, when you think of marriage prospects in my culture, you immediately think of, um, can they work? Can they study? Can they be successful? And can they have children? And all of those things come into play when you have a chronic illness. Um, so it was one of those things like, you know, this could make me disabled. This could kill me. I don't know if I could, you know, check off all those boxes at some point in my life. Are you sure you're going to be able to accept me? That was more my impetus um, for disclosing and for putting it out there because I did not suddenly want to be rejected. And to be completely honest with you, Noah, I was rejected um, in the years that followed. Um, and I sort of knew that was coming um, should my disease get worse. And it did happen to me. By like family and your yeah, culture and stuff. family, and society, community. Yes. Um. It 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 got really bad. I think two years into our relationship, my husband was told, at the time he was my boyfriend, oh, you should leave her. Um, she won't be able to have your children. Um, she won't be. You know, like she's had so many surgeries at this point. At that point, I think I had a couple of surgeries, and I was having something called a J pouch done. So I opted for that. And I was having those surgeries at the time when he was being told to leave me. And he's like, how do I leave a woman I'm in love with who I've been with for the last couple of years? I don't, I, I don't understand that. So there was a lot of pushback that, you know, we got as a couple, um, not just then, um, but even when we were about to get married a couple years after that. And in, in 2010, there was so much pushback. Even after we got married, I continued to get sicker and sicker and sicker, which is what led to my Crohn's diagnosis, which led to the change in diagnosis from ulcerative colitis to Crohn's. And I think I started facing a lot of 
what you call um, ableism, um, sort of Absolutely. on a cultural level, but also, you know, just from society at large. At work, I faced it. Um, I, at home, I faced it. In the community, I faced it. It's just this preference for people who are able-bodied and who are considered productive members of society. And I think I was really struggling on a cultural level with, look, my culture is looked at as sort of this model minority in this country. You know, we're successful. A lot of us are doctors or lawyers or engineers or whatever. I couldn't do that. I wasn't able to work. There's no way I could have worked with all the surgeries I had in the seven-year period. When I would go to events, when I would go to things, it'd just be like, oh, what do you do? How do I tell people I have an illness when it's considered a flaw in my culture and nobody talks about flaws? Yeah. One. Two, how do I tell them, you know, I'm on disability right now because I can't work? That, yeah. that That's just like the biggest buzzkill to a conversation when it's all about uber successful people. Yeah. It's an everywhere thing, too, of like everyone is always asking that's the first question someone asks you, what do you do? And I, cause I was on, I am still on medical leave from UT for a long time and I didn't know what to say. So I would just like lie or make up an excuse or literally change the subject. Cause I didn't know what to say or how to say it without telling like my whole story. I was totally embarrassed. I'd go to events. I can't eat the food at events. It'll be Thanksgiving or something, and I, I don't know if you're familiar, but Indian food can be really spicy. Yeah. And I'd just be like, um, bringing my own food. And it's just <laughs> like, why can't you eat that food? So it's like nobody really wanted to talk to me, and I didn't know how to talk to people. Like, I felt like a wallflower everywhere I went because it's like, wait, you're on disability? You look perfectly healthy to me. Why aren't yeah. you working? Oh, I have a friend with Crohn's, but she works. Yeah, those are the kinds of sort of weird remarks I would get. And I'd just be like, I don't know what to say to that. I have a yeah. really like severe version of it. Like I, you want me to go into my history and prove my disability to you? Yeah. Like, and it's hard to participate like socially because there, you feel like there's all these landmines of like topics that you don't exactly. know how to talk about yet. And so you're just like trying to avoid and then it's hard to make like meaningful connections because you're always just like, avoiding topics exactly exactly and it's just like it was almost easier to stay home and stay socially isolated and watch movies or hang out with my core group of friends because they got it they saw me in and out of the hospital but being around anybody unfamiliar it was just like okay I I you know and I'm I'm pretty extroverted person I'm pretty outgoing person so for me to feel like a wallflower and feel sort of excommunicated in a way uh, you know it's it was it was very stifling for my personality so how did you move to a place of self-acceptance you know there were things that you would do to kind of like little things to kind of hide your um illness and stuff and to avoid conversations and and I know now you're kind of there I mean you have your own blog and everything so how did you come to that point of self-acceptance where you were like yeah this is me and I'm just gonna say it like it is and and all of that and with with your culture but also you know in your own relationship yeah so how I came to this point of self-acceptance was really it was a really long process I think for a long time, I was seeing, you know, patient advocates out there um, putting out content, information, education. In 2014, I remember telling my husband, look, this is something I can definitely do and want to do and have the experience with. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's going to be social suicide for us. And I was like, okay. And I sort of held back. It was something that was like itching inside of me that I just, I need to come out. You know, I just need. How did you feel about him saying that? Were you. He was, um... he was right. I mean, and yeah. I knew it. And when, when he said it, it was already something I was feeling. I'd be like, I'm going to blow up our whole world. I knew that. And it was like, okay, Tina, just take a step back. You, you're really sick right now. You need surgery. And I, I had to go for several emergency surgeries at that point. I had seven surgeries in 2015. So it kind of fell to the back burner. But yes, it did affect me. I mean, jointly, we sort of decided this was not the right time. But he was right. And I knew it. And I was just like, but I can't live like this. Except I couldn't fight at that point. Um, to have a voice because I was fighting for my life. You know what I mean? I'd say 2015 was a rough year 
And finally, I understood what the word remission meant. But then what happened is as I um, started to regain my confidence after having so many surgeries and starting to get better, I started doing a lot of volunteer work for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation in New York. So one of the things that I did was I started running a women's support group. And that women's support group, you know, it, it really grew during that time, but it really helped me too. I think that what had happened during that time frame was, and I ran the group for two years, but I went to it for a year prior. Um, during those three years or so, I'd say seeing other women in successful marriages who were not sort of put down or who were not sort of criticized for being chronically ill and sort of quote unquote useless because of their illness made me realize, oh my God, I deserve so much better treatment. I have a lot, a lot of knowledge about this condition. I've been through so much. I don't need to be treated like this. I can actually really help people. And I think my confidence just kept growing as that time went on. And um, in 2017, uh, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, like late 2017, asked if I would want to be their honored hero for... Um, they're, they do a, a walk every year in each chapter. So in each location around the country, they do. I think New York City has the largest walk um, or the second largest, something like that. And so they asked me to be their honored hero and to speak in front of, I don't know, seven, 800 people about my story. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like no, I don't know about this. But um, in order to do that, there was a lot of lead up to it. So one of the things I had to do was share my story online and they shared it publicly. And I was like, wait a second. So this is going to be blasted out everywhere. But at, at the same time, I was already itching for the last few years to come out. And I think at that point, my husband and I revisited this and we sort of discussed it. And he's like, I think this is the time. And I was like, I think it is too. He's like, you've written a bit. You've done a lot of volunteer work. I think it's time. And I, I agreed. I was like, yes, it is. And I, I think it's, it's overdue almost <laughs> for me to sort of come out with this. And I really want to make a difference. At that point, I realized, you know what, Tina, you can make a difference. And people are reading your story and are taking to what you have to say. Plus, there was a lot of people starting to contact me because there's a lot of people from my community, from the South Asian world, and just in general around the world who could relate to someone, I guess, of my skin tone talking about this and also being like, oh my God, thank you for talking about it because we're living and suffering in shame and in silence. I, you know, it was cathartic for me, but I think what was most important to me was hearing from these patients who were saying, thanks for giving us a voice and for, you know, talking about the issues that plague us because, you know, this disease is stigmatized in this country, Noah, but this, this disease is on a different level of stigma in other countries. Like, it's just, you don't talk about that. That's, that's disgusting. Why would you even bring that up? But when it's, when a disease is a huge chunk of your life, it is something you have to talk about. It is something so, that I want to create awareness for. Did sharing the story online, did that change the way, did that change your relationships? Um, did you start to feel like you didn't have to avoid those landmines and just being like, yeah, this is my food. I'm going to snack alongside you. I think a lot changed. So from 2018 to early 2019, the first year was really hard. It was every time I hit the publish button on my blog, it was mostly my husband hitting it because I was like losing it. I was panicking <laughs> because it's exposing yourself. And I did notice that while I gained followership in the community, there were people um, perhaps from my community and from other communities who were just like, why are you talking about this? It was social suicide. Like I mentioned earlier, it really was. I did lose a lot of friends um, in the process but I guess the friends that you lose in uh, a time like that are not really your true friends to begin with. So yeah. uh, that's what I learned very quickly is, you know what? 
I'm going to make a new set of friends. And I did. I made a lot of friends um, within the community, outside of the community, who really appreciated like the work that I was doing. While there was some hate coming towards me, there was a lot of love coming towards me too. And you have to take the good with the bad. And I did. I say what I want. I eat what I want. I bring what I need to bring. Some people don't love that about me, but I have to take care of myself, you know, yeah. and part of taking care of myself is having that voice. Um, and I think it's also one of those things where like, once you own it, a lot of people are accepting and then it's the people who aren't, then it's like, like you said, like you know, those people, but I can definitely relate to bringing your own food. I had food allergies way before I was, I had like GI issues way before I was diagnosed with anything. And so I was gluten, I like to say I was gluten free before it was cool. And um, I would always go to like cast parties and I couldn't eat anything there. And I would just I think the worst, I didn't care that I couldn't eat anything, but the worst part was like the moms would be like, oh, like, are you sure? Like, is there nothing you can eat here? And like, they literally thought I was like anorexic because I wasn't eating. I think a mom would like say that to me once. And so I would always tell people like later when I like owned it more, I was like, I don't, the worst part is people like making a big deal about it. In my community, the, the big thing is natural cures. And I say cures in quotes. Because a lot of the pushback that I got when I was very sick is, oh, Tina, this is a digestive disease. It's all about the food that you eat. Like, have you tried plant-based? Have you gone gluten-free? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, have you tried Ayurveda, which is an ancient Indian form of medicine? Have you tried Chinese medicine? Have you tried um, homeopathy? And I'm like, I've tried it all. (laughs) You know, like, I'm an educated human being and I have tried it all and by the time I ended up in surgery I had tried everything including western medicine that's the thing that I've struggled with a lot and it sounds like you have too (laughs) yeah for sure I think it's really relatable for everyone I want to go back and talk about your relationship with your husband um how did you guys meet so we met actually through friends I was 22 years old and I think he was 23 at the time and we had gone out with a bunch of friends to a hookah bar and that's when I first met him and he had just moved into New York City and he worked just a few blocks away from me um so we both um he still works in finance we both used to work in finance as well that's how we met and that's how we sort of went on our first date too because we just went to a local restaurant in um the Wall Street vicinity and um grabbed dinner and just realized how much we had in common and I we hit it off right on the first date I want to talk about your wedding so I know that we're talking a lot about culture and weddings are something very cultural I'm Jewish and there's a lot of traditions that go into um, weddings and they can be very specific so um, did you have to kind of make some minor changes to certain traditions for the wedding to accommodate your illness if that be like food or attire or things like that I wouldn't say so much attire I'm the type of person who likes to challenge herself to wear what I want especially coming out of all those surgeries so I did want to wear a sari and I did want to wear it's called a langa which is kind of like a two-piece where there's a top and then there's this long flowy skirt I wanted to wear those things and um thought I should be able to, even though I had some scars on my belly and stuff. So I I did what I wanted to um, do as far as clothing goes. But as far as food and um, rituals and stuff, things were tricky. My background can be very conservative at times. My husband's side of the family is very religious. The the ceremony was two and a half hours long, which was very difficult for me. As somebody with a J pouch, I had to go to the bathroom pretty often. And I was told I had to fast until the entire ceremony was over, which was very hard for me. I did sneak food in. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie, Noah. I snuck food in. I, I went into a corner and ate it. Because the, the traditions are very, very sort of conservative, so to speak. Yeah. And so I, like, while I respect those traditions, they're not sort of medically friendly. <laughs> so exactly. I had to take my medicine too. That's the other yeah. part of it. Like you have to take your medicine with food a lot of times. And I, so I, I did eat, I did um, do what I needed to do because I have to take care of myself. Yes. But also I did try to modify some of the ceremonial steps. I think when 
while talking about some of the cultural religious aspects of having a disease, it can be very tough. It's often very tough for other parties to understand why do you need to eat? Why can't you fast? Um, why do you need to drink? I mean, hydration is really important for, for any of us with, with illnesses. It's, it's that aspect of things, but also uh, the, the food that's available at weddings is often not, you know, uh, something that our bodies find friendly you know, to eat. But I will say planning a wedding with a major chronic illness is very, very difficult. There are so yeah. many things that go wrong at the last minute. It's so stressful. And if I may be perfectly honest with you, one of the things that happened is two days before the wedding, I flared up. And I was very nervous. I, one of my best friends at the time went um, to my pharmacy in New York City because we got married in New Jersey and picked up suppositories for me to get through that, steroid suppositories, um, because my doctor was like, Tina, I, you know, you need to get through these next few days. So he prescribed me a steroid suppository and I got through it. Without that, I don't know how I would have done it. So how is it having those conversations with your then fiance, now husband, about making those modifications? Was it easy with him and was the difficult part like family? Having conversations with my partner, he's always been very understanding. It was very difficult for me having a bowel disease to sort of open up to him and say, I need to use suppositories, I need to step away and use an enema or this, or I need to use the bed right now because you have to lay down and use an enema or lay down and use a suppository sometimes and sort of to have that privacy. I think over time he got it and he wanted to be around and he wanted to sort of understand what it was that I was going through. I'm lucky in that way. I think that he's very sensitive in that manner and wanted to sort of know what was going on with my body. Um, so I very much appreciated that, but it was very hard when I would have accidents. And this is a very hard thing for me to talk about. Like with um, a bowel disease, you can have accidents. Sometimes you have to wear diapers and stuff and you bleed a lot. And um, that was really embarrassing for me at 24, 25, 26, 27, whatever age I was um, to be wearing diapers or to have accidents and then, you know, be in the bathroom and be like, um, Anand, can you come and just drop off an underwear for me or something yeah. like that? Because, or drop off some undergarments or something, something clean for me, because it's, it's really hard to be in that position and ask yeah. for help. How did you get um, comfortable with that? Because I know you said at first telling him was like, there wasn't too much fear around it. But I find for myself that there's a big difference kind of telling someone a little bit about your illness and then actually allowing someone to see you sick in those moments, especially with an invisible illness, because there are certain parts that you can hide takes a lot more effort, but you can. So how did you, when was, what were kind of the first things that he saw you, that you allowed him to see you be sick? And how did you, what was the work you did within yourself to be comfortable with that? I think the first things he saw were me using enemas. Um, and the first way that I sort of had to get him comfortable with it was with pills. So I was taking, I think, three pills three times a day around meals. And so we would spend weekends together a lot, and he wanted to know what I was taking. So that was the first thing he sort of saw. Then the other thing is I had primarily rectal disease. So in order to treat that, it was much easier to use enemas or suppositories um, and in the beginning, I started with enemas, and I would have to ask him to step out of the room um, so that I could use the enemas. At some point, he was like, but I want to be in the room. I want to be there for you. Like, why can't you just be comfortable with that? Like, it was kind of, it evolved. And it was, it, it was me also being like, okay, how much do I let him in? And yeah. if this is someone that I really like and think I can really love, perhaps I do start to slowly, slowly let him in and see. And then he would start asking me questions. What does this medicine do? Um, and then I'd be like, do you mind? Like, and then he, he would ask me to come to his apartment and I'd be like, do you mind if I store these enemas in your fridge? Because they had to be refrigerated. Mm -hmm. So it was like this evolving conversation as to what these medicines are, how I'm using them over time. It was one of those things because it's such an uncomfortable thing for you to just be like, oh, be in the room. Oh, be there for me. 
Um, it doesn't sort of happen like that. And I think it took some time and some sort of level of comfort for both of us where he was just like, no, I want to be there for her. And I was just like, well, I don't know if he's going to love me the same way if he sees me using an enema. You know what I mean? So we met somewhere in the middle. And at some point when he started pushing for wanting to be there, um, I grew more comfortable. And it got to the point where I got more comfortable just using the enemas in front of him. Um, and he didn't, he didn't mind. And it got to the point where this was just another part of being, um, trying to be as healthy as I can. So when you had that feeling of like, oh, is he going to love me if I'm doing an enema in front of him? What was the self-talk you told yourself every time you showed a little more to be like, it's okay, I'm just going to go for it? I think the self-talk around getting more comfortable with using something like an enema in front of my boyfriend at the time was just like, oh no, initially it was like, oh no, 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 Tina, you can't do that. He's not going to love you. He's not going to even find you attractive. It was sort of this self-talk where I was just like, Tina, it's okay. He he likes you for who you are. And I had to keep reassuring myself, Tina, this is not just about your illness. He likes you for who you are. It's not just your illness. This is you. You are the person he likes. It's not the, It's not about the illness all the time. The, the, the illness comes with you, yes, but he cares more about you and making you happy, Tina. And that's kind of the self-talk that was going on in my mind at the time is always reminding myself that he likes me for who I am. And I think it has to be the right person in order for that self-talk to even evolve in the first place. Yeah, I mean, everyone I talk to with partners, they all kind of say the same thing. They all say, my partner is really, really great and really supportive. And I think they probably totally are, but I really believe, you know, you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. So I really want to get down into what you as a chronic illness person did to get to that point because you had to be at a point where you could attract and accept that type of really supportive love, you know? Oh, um, I 100% agree with that, Noah. I think that this is all about self-love. This is all yeah. about self-talk. If you don't have the confidence in yourself to be able to own whatever condition you have and be uh, be able to go out there and get the type of person that you're looking for, a supportive person, it's not going to happen. I think there has to be some element of self-sufficiency and independence, but there at, also at has least to emotionally, be- if not because yeah. I don't think you have to physically. I mean, you can yeah. be disabled in any way, but it's just emotionally being okay with yourself, I think. Exactly. You're 100% on point with that because with my husband, even now, like he's just like, I want to help you. I want to do these things for you. I'm like, I can do them myself. But it's almost like he wants to physically be there for me, but he knows that I have an emotional handle on things. And he is emotionally there for me as well. But it's it's different. He knows that I've got this. You know what I mean? Even if I'm in the hospital, he knows that I've got this, that um, even if I'm in an emergency situation, even if I'm heading into surgery, that I'm having the conversations, that I'm asking the right questions, he knows that I'm owning this, whatever it is, and however much it sucks, he knows that I've got a handle on this. And that in and of itself, I think, is an attractive quality. Moping is not. And I think that's what the issue is, is when when people present their disease in this negative sort of light that it's holding them back from their life, that takes um, that sort of can take a, a different turn on a relationship. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely a stage of illness. Like everyone goes through that stage and it also isn't, it also comes back. Like it's like the stages of grief. A lot of people talk about the wheel of grief uh, applies to illness as well. So it definitely comes back, but you know um, I think it's when it comes back, once you've kind of come to that place of self-acceptance, you're able to kind of feel it and then move past it. That being said about being okay with yourself as people with chronic illness, um, we do need help with certain tasks or things. And I know that um, I read on your blog that you you kind of talk about your husband being your caregiver. So tell me a little bit about that. So, yeah, I think there's been two major caregivers in my disease journey, and that's been my mother and my husband. I think my husband's done a lot in terms of financially taking care of me. Um, and helping me get through this. I, there's no way I would have gone to Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic to have surgeries or to even have procedures or checkups um, without his help. 
I think he's been emotionally there for me, but physically he's taken me to these places. Um, and physically he's made sure we've had the health insurance to make it possible for me to have these kinds of surgeries and get the best care possible. I think that's been his biggest sort of contribution in terms of my health. In terms of also being there for me, he does come occasionally to doctor's appointments with me and he does take me for procedures here in New York and he's really, he helps me around the house when he can. But in general, he works a lot. So it's it's tough for him to be there physically to help me cook or clean, but he still does it. I mean, on weekends and nights as much as he can, um, he definitely does it. There was a period of time that he was working so many hours that my mom was really um, a big part of her lives and she was helping me um, around the house, cooking, cleaning, taking care of me, making sure um, somebody was there to help me wash up, especially after surgery. It's, it's very, very hard. Like some of us have drains coming out of us. We have lines coming out of us, tubes. Um, I had an ostomy bag on top of those things. Like it's very hard to shower on your own and you're also like so exhausted after surgery. So um, I think... Those two have been my primary caregivers. My husband's helped me on weekends with those kinds of things. But trying to get through some of these things is very, very difficult. And I, I think I've been sort of down in the dumps many times. And he's sort of helped me calm myself and feel like it's okay and I'm going to get through it. So for some of the um, physical things that he's helping you with, like cooking or, you know, showering, cleaning drains. Are there any, you know, fun things that you guys do to kind of lighten the mood or do you just like laugh? You just got to laugh about it sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question that you bring up. I think I've had so many wounds in so many weird places and having your husband pack those after surgery um, really is a buzzkill for a relationship. And so I think coming out of surgery, a lot of times I was just like, is he ever going to be attracted to me again? Trying to reinvent your marriage after having some pretty serious surgeries is very, very difficult. So you have to find fun things to do. I think for us, especially when I was recovering for, from surgery, we would watch a lot of like sitcoms and stuff to try to, you know, take our minds off or rom-coms, things that would make me laugh and him laugh to take away from the seriousness, the gravity of what I had just gone through. Um, and uh, it, we do play a lot of board games together. We go to the movies together. Uh, one thing that we really enjoy doing that we're not able to do right now is go out to eat together. Being out and about is really our thing, going for walks together, going to the park together, walking the bridge, like the Brooklyn Bridge or something. Um, together, uh, going into new neighborhoods, exploring those new neighborhoods, trying local cuisine there as much as I can handle. Um, ha th those have been really fun things for us to do. And I think since I, my health started improving in the last few years, we have taken some international trips together and explored some international destinations as well together so if he's cooking dinner or like i said like it you know if he's giving you a bath or helping you to shower doing those things in those moments um do you feel guilt yeah um i think it's less so right now only because i am more physically independent yeah. right now but oh my god have i felt guilt um yeah. on so many levels not being able to take care of yourself as a young adult is a really hard thing to process and it does create a lot of guilt um and I have really suffered from like even if he would do the dishes I'd just be like Tina you should be doing the dishes right now and I'd force myself to get up and then I'd be like oh my god I'm gonna die in pain stuff like that and I would feel really bad about it but here's the thing that I always tell myself and tell other people and this goes back to the self-talk again we can only do so much when we are chronically ill. Sometimes it's really important for us to ask for that help and just yeah. take that help. And um, th there's there's no brushing away guilt. I think it's important to feel it and mm -hmm. to let it be and to understand that it's okay to ask for help when you need it. And so that's how I've been sort of coping with it. Yeah, and um, I also say that this is something that I kind of, had to work through and learn as well that um, True. things aren't like transactional. And so, you know, maybe um, you're not the one to do the dishes, but you can contribute in other ways that aren't like measurable. And I think that's a 
good like tagline in quotes for disability as well that whole idea that like different is not lesser than and you contribute in different ways but they're still valuable you know that's a really interesting thought that you bring up and I think what used to frustrate me a lot is people would always tell my husband oh my god what are you getting out of this relationship you're giving so much to it like all these years into our marriage we're going to be married 10 years this summer Um, All these years into our marriage, people would tell him, you could do so much better. What are you getting out of this? And I'd be like, does nobody see what I contribute to this? And it it might be different, but there's emotional aspects to a marriage um, that are super important. And I think I've also been his rock in many ways, um, emotionally helping to keep him together um, through some of the things that he's gone through. Like, this isn't just about me because I have this major illness. I mean, everybody has their own things going on, and he's been through his own stuff, and I've really been there for him. And I I think it's not fair for people to just discount that a person with illnesses has no value or no use in a relationship. That's not fair, and it's not true. So how did you get comfortable asking for help? I don't know if you ever quite get comfortable asking for help. Yeah. Um, but I think that at some point in time, it's one of those things that becomes a necessity. And as things ebb and flow, because we know that with chronic illness, there's flare ups, there's mm-hmm. ups and downs, um, and there's days that you're doing great. Um, and I think that was one of the things that my husband saw is when she's well, she's doing it all. And when she's not, I have to pick up the slack. And not that that's a transaction at all, but I think he got to understand sort of those ebbs and flows of disease. And it it was hard for him. I'm not going to lie. It was not easy. There were times when we would argue like, wait, how, how come you were able to do that yesterday, but you're not today? And then he sort of figured it out. He could tell um, as he got to know me better. Oh, she's having a bad day today. So he would pick up the slack. And it was one of those things that, you know, I would have to ask for his help. But it was also one of those things that he would start picking up on and being like, okay, I I don't think she's having a good day today. Maybe I'll pick up the slack on this. So it was one of those things where I became more comfortable, so to speak, because I was just like, you know what? I'm going to pick up the slack when I'm doing a lot better. I just need to try to get through today type of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like that you kind of mentioned that at first it was, you know, you guys did have like arguments about it. And then was it just uh, time that helped with that? Or did you like have really good kind of communication um, yeah. surrounding that? I think it was both. I think that time definitely helped him understanding my illness and seeing my day to day helped. But also on top of that, I think me communicating with him and him communicating with me. So I think a lot of times it's important to sort of preempt the conversation and have um, that discussion so that it doesn't lead to arguments. Because in the beginning, it would lead to arguments for us. But then I sort of started to understand him, too, that I need to communicate with him and tell him because I might look fine on the outside, but I don't know how I'm going to move today. You know what I mean? Exactly. (laughs) It was like one of those things, but he can't, he doesn't know that he's not in my body. So I think more so than asking for help, it was more about communicating that I'm not really doing that well today. I'm not in a good space mentally or physically um, to be able to go out and hang out with those friends today. You know, that type of thing. He's like, but you know, we went out to dinner with these friends that time. How can how come we can't do it this time? And it's totally understandable on his part, right? Because he's just like basing this off two days ago or something. And I'm like, well, I'm just not well today. And um, sometimes when you can't see that because an illness is invisible, it's really hard for them to understand. So we have to help them understand. And I think that's where the onus lies on us. And I think that's where relationships can break down as well. It's, it's not just um, the confidence that you exude. It's about the way you communicate, how you approach that communication, and also making sure that communication isn't condescending, that it's yeah. respectful, that it's loving, and that it's um, understanding and compassionate. I definitely like struggle with that. Um, because I think, 
we're so used to experiencing it, but they're not in our bodies. And like, sometimes I guess we do have to like hold space and be patient and, you know, try to explain it. You know, absolutely. And to be fair, like, yes, you know, I don't want to have to prove my illness to anybody. Yeah. But at the same time, like they're not in our shoes. They don't know what it feels like to be as sick as we've been. So sometimes it's, it's important for us to put that out there look, I'm going through X, Y, and Z, and this is what it feels like. And um, I want to be there. I want to go to this wedding, or I want to be at this friend's event, but I, I just can't do it today. It's one of those things, and I think that depending on how we portray it and um, how lovingly and respectful we put that, respectfully we put it out there, um, it can be taken well or it doesn't have to be. If we're defensive about it or... If we get offended about it, it's it shows and that that um, combativeness might show. And I think that's where the patience gets lost and that's where the arguments start. So I always try to encourage people to try to do this with as much compassion for the other person, too, because they're in this with us. Um, they're struggling because of this disease, too, except they don't have it. They can't feel it, but they feel the after effects of it. So we have to be understanding of that aspect of as well. This is a team. This is teamwork. Um, are there certain, like, I'm going to get very Brene Brown here, but are there certain boundaries um, that you or him um, find, like, really important for maintaining the relationship, either emotional or physical or anything? In terms of, I, I think, the outside world, we definitely have boundaries up because there's been a lot of sort of um, pushback from my community and people telling him to leave me type things, which have been very uncomfortable that we have sort of put up walls around people we know, um, might instigate and cause problems in our marriage. So how have you dealt with, um, all of that stigma and pushback and all of the things people have said, how have you dealt with that as a couple? I think initially it led to a lot of arguments until this day. Sometimes it does too. Um, we've been through a lot of couples therapy. Um, I'm not going to lie. There's no shame. There's no stigma. No shame. No. Yeah. It's super important to talk about that. I think that it is what it is. And sometimes we need to understand each other and not talk past each other in terms of that. I think the biggest issue that we faced in our marriage is sort of that disrespect for me, um, in this marriage as an equal partner. Um, that's, perhaps debatable, but, um, I think that we have a pretty good relationship. That's the only time we really fight when I feel disrespected as, as someone who's lesser next to him. Um, and that's been perhaps the most, that's been the time that I get the most defensive, um, and the most combative is when I feel like people are saying that I'm not good enough to be with him. So it's, it's been very hard for me because that's a whole self-worth issue too that I've had to work on individually in therapy. So I think in the beginning that was really hard. We had a lot of arguments about it. We've both worked on it individually, but we've also come together and worked on it as a couple. And, um, you know, I've asked him to stand up for me and also stand up for what I do bring to this relationship. And I think that's really important. Um, I, especially when in an interabled relationship where one party might be, um, chronically ill and the other party might not be, I think it's very important for the, the person who's able-bodied to stand up for the person with disabilities. It's not fair. It's not easy. Um, and I understand, um, from their perspective, it's not easy to have to stand up for you all the time. We have to stand up for ourselves every single day. You know how it is. I think it's not only though standing up for you because you are um, married. So I think it's actually standing up for himself as well, because it's like, he's like, these are the choices. These are my life choices. And this is my life partner. I don't know if you've heard of the the vlog Squirmy and Grubs. They're an interabled couple and he has spinal muscular atrophy and she is able-bodied and um, she- I know of them. Yes, yes, yes. So she had made some posts about like um, how she was upset that like another Disney ride was made that wasn't accessible. And someone, of course, on Instagram commented some nasty comment about like, oh, I'm sure Shane doesn't need you like doing his dirty work and advocating for you. And she was like, actually, I'm advocating for myself as well, because I want to be able to enjoy a ride with my fiance. So I was like, yeah, and I I thought so I thought that that was like relevant, because at the end of the day, it's not just for you, it's for both of you, I think. 
And I think that's where the disconnect has been. And I think you're 100% on point, Noah. For us, um, the disconnect has really been standing up for me means standing up for you and your life choices. Um, and I think uh, oftentimes uh, the able-bodied person might not see it that way. But once they start doing it, um, they start to realize, oh, my God, this is so much a statement on me, too. You know what I mean? That this is so much uh, of me defending my life choices and not having people question that and not yeah. allowing people to and setting those boundaries firmer. So I 100% agree with you. And I think sometimes it can take work on um, the supportive partner who might be able-bodied um, to stand up. They stood up when they married you or when they decided to be with you. But the thing that's really hard to digest sometimes is that this is a lifetime struggle in the sense that you have to stand up for your decision every single day, just in the same way that we stand up every single day for ourselves and for our disabilities. You know yeah. what I mean? And I don't think they're used to that. And I think that's where the disconnect has been with me and my husband for many years. And it's changing. Where it gets tricky is especially like around the holiday times when there's a lot of family meetups or extended sort of community meetups and there'll be questions about food and this or that or what are you working on or why are you doing this kind of advocacy work and it's almost just like mind your own business, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like it's almost like that type of thing but at, on some level I do want to give a response. I want people to understand you know, why I do this kind of work. So I often do give a response when it comes to my advocacy work that this is something I'm passionate about. This is something that makes me happy, gives me joy, and helps me um, give back to a community that's given me so much. And that's usually my response. Um, and I 100% I agree with you. I think that in any sort of relationship, whether it's able-bodied, interabled, or completely disabled, doesn't matter. I think that a partner should be sticking up for the other person. Um, I think that's part of being married. I think that's part of a partnership, whether you're married or not. And it's sort of this um, symbiotic nature of being together with somebody is understanding um, how to respect each other and how to provide that love for one another so that other people don't encroach on your relationship and cause those divides in your relationship. I feel like it's one thing if someone's asking like, oh, what do you do all day type thing? But it's another thing if people are saying things about your relationship because everybody um, has, I don't like to even use the word baggage, but like everybody brings things into a relationship. And I think the difference is that most people like that stays in the bedroom and in, in their relationship. And it's, or, or in some families, it doesn't. In some families, they're always trying to stir the pot and bring up that stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about intimacy. Sure. Um, so earlier you were talking about, you know, after coming out of, you know, surgeries and the hospital and stuff, and you had these feelings like, oh, is, you know, he ever going to find me attractive again? So what I want to know is how did you, what things did you do um, to feel, um, for you to feel yourself attractive um, uh, after, you know, uh, having surgeries, being in the hospital or while being in a flare? Yeah, no, um, honestly, a lot of times when I end up in a severe flare, I ended up in the hospital. So um, it was very difficult. You know, you go into a hospital gown, it's not exactly, it's not exactly the sexiest outfit in the world, you know what I mean? And also you're having all these procedures that are invasive, that are in your lady parts or in your private areas and stuff. And it's not exactly sexy. And so I think I really, really struggled being 20 something and having all these weird procedures and not just procedures. I developed something called fistulas, which I don't know if you're familiar, but just, um, I, I should highlight this as um, what happens is when your intestines get so inflamed that um, in Crohn's disease, it can penetrate through the intestines. So the inflammation um, can penetrate through the intestines and break through the intestines into another organ. For me, um, uh, mine broke through into the vaginal wall. Um, so this was causing a lot of um, stool and mucus and blood to leak through. And it was disgusting. And it didn't make me feel like a woman at all. This is called fistulizing Crohn's disease. And um, it's a very severe form of the disease. And at some point, it takes a really big toll. 
on not just on not just on you but on your partner and your intimate life and every aspect of your being because you feel like less of a woman you feel like less of a human being and you have no control like there's levels of stigma here Noah there's having inflammatory bowel disease is one level of stigma having an ostomy bag is another level of stigma and then you have a fistula and it's like oh my god what the f is this so I just intimacy has been a very difficult thing in the sense like making myself feel more attractive has been a very hard thing and trying to build myself back up after surgeries has been a very very challenging thing for me to do I think coming out of surgery come 2012 like four years into me having surgery I decided I needed to start revamping things uh, revamping my uh, wardrobe revamping my hairstyle buying different like types of glasses or wearing contacts or different colors of makeup, shade, this, that, or the other, lipsticks, different things that I could play around with in order for me to feel like I could be myself again. And then I started to push sort of those limits or those boundaries by, you know, wearing the makeup, going out with my girlfriends or, you know, starting to live my life again. My friend threw her 30th birthday in Vegas and I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I have a knee brace on because my arthritis in my knee is acting up. I have an ostomy. I still put on that band-aid dress and went out. (laughs) With that knee brace, I did not care. And I made up strange stories to anybody who asked about my knee brace. I needed to feel alive again. I was 29 years old and I felt like I was dying inside. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to wear the dress. I'm going to go out with that damn knee brace. I don't care. And I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to try to be there for my friends and be there for my friend, uh, for myself. And I had the time of my life. You have to live your life in the midst of all these doctor's appointments and surgeries. You have to live your life. And I think that ends up bringing your mental health back into shape, which allows you to feel like your old self again, or a new version of yourself, rather, yeah. and allows your personality to come back. And I think that's what drives attractiveness at the end is your personality and who you are and if you let that personality shine. Yeah, so going back to intimacy, I know that a lot of the fistulas and things could cause, you know, pelvic pain and and yeah. and make things difficult. So what was that like navigating that as a couple and were there some alternate cuz you know sex isn't the only form of intimacy. Yeah. So were there some alternate methods during those times or even now that you guys found that really helped you to like stay connected? It was really, really hard, but I would say that it wasn't always just about intercourse. I think that we learned to enjoy each other's company in other ways, and we understood each other. And I think I had to go for a lot of therapy, like psychotherapy, but also for a lot of physical therapy um, to deal with the pelvic pain. And that actually helped with the intercourse over time. So what had happened is I was running short of um, physical therapy visits. And so my pelvic floor physical therapist actually told me, why don't you bring your husband in so I can show him what internal uh, manual sort of manipulation looks like and the manual work looks like, just so he has an understanding and if he can help out with some of it. So I think at that point, he, he had no idea what it was that I was having done. But when I brought him in um, and he got to see it and he got to try it out for himself with me, he was like, oh boy, so this is what's causing a lot of your pain. And I was like, yeah. And so I think a lot of times what I've had to do with my husband, especially with these tough conversations around surgery and intimacies, actually bring him into the office so that he can understand. Do you feel like that brought you closer as a couple? I definitely feel like that brought us closer as a couple because there's a lot of tough conversations that need to be had, especially around intimacy, but not just around intimacy, around like what your relationship is going to look like after a surgery or after like major bouts of disease. Bringing your partner in with you to the doctor's office, you know, doesn't leave room for much to be questioned, right? Because your partner can ask those questions in that appointment, or if he or she has questions afterwards can ask you to sort of make sure you ask those questions of your physician so that, and then you can bring it back to them. So I'm almost always of the opinion, if you have to have a major appointment with a doctor, you take your partner. 
and so that they can allay some of their fears so that they can hear it, so to speak, from the horse's mouth and so that there's no questioning of it and so that they don't also, and this is an important point, remain in denial about what's going on because that can happen too. What other ways do you feel like your um, chronic illness actually strengthened and um, your relationship and brought you guys closer? We are on sort of the same vibe or understand each other because he has been there. He's seen what my body does. He's seen my stoma. He's seen my ostomy. He knows how much it saved my life. He's seen me go through these ups and downs. He's appreciated me as a human being and who I am today. He expresses a lot of respect for me and the work that I do. I can see it in his eyes when he talks to me. He has a tremendous amount of respect for what I've been through and how I've come out of this and how I'm trying to change things for other people. And, and it's almost to the point where he wishes he could do the same. And I think that's where some of his caregiving stories have come out of is just, you know, wanting to be a partner who shares in that I want to give back to. And so I think on that level, it has brought us so much closer together for him to see, look, my wife is able to do something with her deepest and darkest struggles. Yeah. And I feel like also, you know, with chronic illness, you kind of have the benefit, especially if you met kind of at the beginning of your journey, going through the rough stuff already from the start. And so you kind of have built these tools, have learned like yeah. mechanisms to work together. So I'm not going to say it's easy, though. Yeah. Aside from arguments and stuff, this is heavy stuff to process. It's not an easy thing. It's also nearly torn us apart so many times. I'm not going to lie. Every single time that we have fought to be together, despite all of this, has brought us even closer together. I want to wrap this up with one last question that I ask all of my guests. What advice would you give to other young chronically ill people who are wanting to date and or be or, be or are in relationships? I think that a lot of us think that because of our chronic illnesses, people will not want, uh, want to be with us. And I think, you know, sometimes that's the case. But for the right person, it's not going to be the case. It's not going to be the, the thing that breaks the camel's back. It's something that you can figure out pretty early on if you have that self-love and self-respect for, for yourself. To know, is this person respecting me? Even on the first, second, third date, is just trying to understand, is this person hearing me? Is this person there emotionally, physically? Is he tuned in or is she tuned in? And then when you get to that point where you share your chronic illness diagnosis, how they respond and react is very much how, something that you can pick up on. But the key is that self-love, that self-respect has to be there. That confidence has to be there. And I've heard people say this before, and it is definitely the truth. If you make a huge deal out of your chronic illness, whether or not it is one, and you act like it's the end of the world, it will be the end of the world for the partner too. If you act like you can own this thing, that you have some degree of control, even though we don't have control over our illnesses, if we have that understanding, have the tools, have the knowledge to manage our disease, I think that shows. And I think the other thing that I would say is Make sure that, you know, you're talking to people who are on the same wavelength as you, have the same values as you. And that's really something that comes out of the first couple of dates is what are your values? What are the things that interest you? If those things are there, if that foundation is there, usually it does not get sort of shaken by just a chronic illness. For my husband and me, when we first went on our first couple of dates, it was like, wow, we have the same values. We have the same I wouldn't say interests because he's a completely different person from who I am, like completely opposite, but we have the same core values. We, we want the same goodness um, for people in the world. We have that same sort of compassion, that same sort of kindness. We want the same things from life and have the same goals. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your story. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure having you on here. Thanks. No, I really, really appreciate this. And, you know, I will say one thing. I've done a lot of podcasts and interviews and videos and whatnot. I appreciate the depth with which you went into this because 
you know, people just show on social media, oh, this is me and my partner, look how supportive he is. But there's so many ups and downs to a relationship, and there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we can't just chalk it up to this person's supportive. There's a lot of roller coaster rides you go on in a relationship, and I think it's important to discuss that. Well, thank you so much for spooning with us. Of course. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe for more. Check out our Insta at Spooning with Spoonies pod and share with your Spoonie or non-Spoonie friends. This episode was edited by my amazing friend, Sarah Rosa Davies.